This is the Get a Game Plan podcast hosted by the Louisiana Governor's Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness, our GOSEP. I'm Mike Steele, the Communications Director for our GOSEP. Thank you for joining us. We have some special information for you regarding an ongoing recovery project in Alaska. As you may have heard, a major earthquake impacted much of the state last fall, including the metro Anchorage area. I was fortunate to be able to spend a few weeks in Alaska helping the State Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. We will hear from some of their employees about that event and the lessons learned. Some of the lessons, as you'll hear, are similar to the lessons learned with other emergencies here, proving some emergency preparation is the same regardless of the event. Before we get started with our interviews, we like to start each episode with an emergency preparedness tip. This preparedness information is mainly for small business owners or managers. In order to make sure your business is prepared, start with a few simple questions. First, are you vulnerable to an emergency? Many businesses were impacted by the two Louisiana flood events in 2016. Some had never had problems before. Does that threat still exist? What have you done to mitigate any potential problems? What will you do if you face an emergency again? Second, what is your plan to protect employees before, during, and after an emergency? This question involves finding employees or individuals to help analyze the company. Maybe designate a committee to help develop your best emergency plan. Number three, how do you make sure your emergency plan works? Obviously, train your employees, and you may need to stock up on certain safety equipment and supplies. And most importantly, practice your plan so everyone knows what they are expected to do. And finally, how will you stay in contact with your employees and key clients? Develop a business communication plan. Make sure designated employees have a hard copy of contact numbers in case contact information stored in phones or computers is not available. That is today's preparedness tip. Now on to our first interview. As we mentioned at the top of the show, Alaska was impacted by a major earthquake a few days after Thanksgiving, and the recovery work is ongoing. We spoke with one of Alaska's emergency management employees about the personal lessons she's learned over the years in dealing with events like an earthquake where there is little or no warning. Now let's go to that interview. We are joined now by Michelle Torres, the Outreach Branch Chief for the Alaska Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness. Michelle, thanks for joining us. Uh, we noticed in dealing with a lot of emergencies that a lot of the, the basics on handling these emergencies are the same. The notification is important, uh, the actions of the people and making sure they understand what the watches and warnings and different notifications mean are important. But we also talk a lot about a communications plan. With the earthquake that happened in Alaska last year, you said that was an important thing for your family to do as well, right? That's correct, Mike. So in January of 2018, there was an earthquake center just outside of Kodiak. And I think it was it was over a 7.0. I can't remember exactly what it was. Well, that earthquake triggered tsunami warnings for southeast Alaska. My son is a police officer in Sitka, Alaska, and so um, the tsunami warnings were for his community. Well, where I live, I didn't feel any of the shaking, so I didn't know anything was going on until I received a phone call 
from work asking me not to report that I wasn't needed. So immediately, of course, I wake up, I jump up, I look at the news, see what's going on. Um, as a mother, your first instinct is to tell your kids what to do. So I called my son, left a message, um, didn't hear back from him. I text him, this is your mother, like he doesn't know. And I'm like, this is a tsunami warning, you need to get to high ground, hurry up and get there. And I'm not lying, you know. And so about five minutes later, I get a text from him saying, Mom, I'm working, I'm evacuating people. So, of course, I stayed up the rest of the night, and thankfully there was no tsunami. Um, it did not uh, materialize. So the next day, I was talking to my daughters who live in Anchorage, which is about 50 miles from where I live. And I asked them, I said, did you guys feel the earthquake last night? And they said, yes. And I asked them, I said, did you guys call each other, check on each other? No. And I said, how come nobody called me? And they're like, well, we thought you went to work, and they figured their brother was busy, so nobody called. And to understand why this was important to me was, is my kids grew up understanding emergency management and understanding the importance of a communication plan. So we, every Christmas, my family and I go through this. And so when we actually had an event where it would have been nice to have been called or there could have been potential for a disaster, it totally failed. It totally failed. So I spent the remainder of 2018 up and through, you know, through that uh, spring and summer really working with the kids on developing a communication plan. And for many of you, you think, okay, that's an easy task. It's not so easy when your kids are grown adults, they have their own lives, and they don't see the value as much as you do. And so, but we worked on it, we planned it, we talked about it, and um, so this year when we had the 7.0 in Anchorage um, on November 30th, as the earthquake occurred, um, of course I dropped covered and held on underneath my desk, and I grabbed my phone and I immediately called my husband and I got through quickly, and I already had a text ready to go in case the phone call didn't go through. And we literally talked for less than 15 seconds. He said, I'm okay, and I told him I was okay, and he says, I'll call our daughter. Well, he got a hold of one daughter, I got a hold of the other. And before the earthquake was over, I already knew my girls in Anchorage were safe, and my mother, and as we had to evacuate the building and we're continuing to have aftershocks, I had already gotten a hold of my son to let him know that we had had an earthquake, we were okay. And at that point, we didn't know if a tsunami was triggered for Southeast. We didn't, I mean, we didn't even know where the earthquake was centered by the time we had evacuated the building. But I did let him know that, you know, we just had an earthquake, there could be potential for a tsunami. So our whole family um, did our communication plan in less than five minutes, and it made it able for me to go do my job down here in the State Emergency Operations Center so much better because I didn't have to worry that my family was unsafe or anything mm -hmm. was going on. I was able to do my job. I knew everybody was safe. We followed not only our communication plan, but our evacuation plan. I'm thankful that we had the test run where nothing happened in January to allow us to um, finalize and really take our plan and make it work because had I not been able to get a hold of my family during this disaster, I don't think I would be able to do my job as effectively as a responder. Earthquakes aren't one of the main threats that we think about in Louisiana. There is a potential because there is actually a fault that kind of follows the Mississippi River to a certain extent. Uh, and we have had a couple of uh, minor scares over the years. But this plan that you're talking about is basically the same for any type of event that, that really has no notice or very short notice sometimes. So for us, it could be, you know, a hazmat event or it could be uh, a situation with a tornado outbreak where you have very little notice. But having those communications plans in place 
uh, is so important. And, and you mentioned for your family, but it's also important for businesses and their employees to also have a communications plan in place, correct? That is actually correct. So what was interesting about this is so at the time, I have two staff that work and they were not in the office yet. And so as soon as the earthquake um, happened and I got outside, I texted them to let them know I would need them to come in. With They never received my text, believe it or not, until Sunday evening in the middle of the night. But they came in on their own accord because this is something we had talked about previously, what our plan was in the event of some kind of disaster. Number one, they made sure their family was safe and secure, and then they reported to work. And interestingly enough, so the earthquake happens Friday morning. It was Sunday about, I don't know, 1 o'clock in the morning. I get a text from one of my guys, and he says, is everything okay? And I'm like, why? He said, you told us to come into work. And so I'm thinking, did I miss another disaster? What's going on? I'm so tired. Well, my text actually just happened to get through by Sunday. So it just took a little bit of time, but um, they knew what to do. So we here in the division have a plan for communication, and I think every business should have one. So one of the things we developed in Louisiana is our Get a Game Plan app, and part of what we put on that app is an I'm Safe tab, because now there's a lot of social media ways you can communicate to also let family members or friends or coworkers know that you're safe. So it's good to have those plans in place. We also encourage people maybe to have an out-of-state contact. If you have an aunt that lives you know, maybe in another state that stays in, in regular contact with everyone, you know, have her as kind of a rally point as well so that people can kind of check in and uh, and make sure that everyone knows that they're safe. That's actually a really good point. So our family does have that. We actually have two rally points because um, when you think about Alaska, for example, if we had a tsunami, that tsunami has the potential to hit California, which it has in the past. And so we really look to see, um, so we have family in California, we have family in Hawaii. So both of those are vulnerable areas to, you know, disasters on their own. So we do have two different locations that our family can contact. And interestingly enough, within, I would say, the first 20 minutes after the earthquake, um, both of those contacts had already texted me to check in to make sure I was okay and if they needed to be on standby to hear from other family members. And I let them know at that point that we had already, you know, touched base with each other and we were good to go. So that's important to have. But one thing I want to point out that's really interesting is that during this earthquake, my cell phone was almost dead, was partially dead because I hadn't charged it. Thankfully, I have um, extra bat- uh, charger cords at work here. But if I were to have a dead cell phone, I couldn't remember people's phone numbers. So I have put on a little card that's in my wallet, um, everybody's phone, my kids' phone numbers, my husband's phone numbers, and also out-of-state contacts. And people are like, well, why would you need your husband? You should know that. But I will tell you, in the midst of a disaster, your nerves are shaking, and the things that would be so simple to remember often go out of your head. So if you can have something to actually visually look at, not have to recall it from memory, that is very helpful. You know, that is a great point because we rely on cell phones for so much information nowadays that a lot of people, like, I can't name, I I don't know all the phone numbers from my family members. Uh, I'll be the first one to admit that. And so it is important to have those contacts somewhere else where you have them readily available. Um, I guess the final thing would be, with you guys, it's it's earthquakes and tsunamis that we've been focused on a lot uh, over the past few months. Uh, but how important is it to understand different watches and warnings as they come out and, and to know what action to take? That's very important because as right now we are hitting our spring season, really actually one of our big threats right now is flooding. And so we're actually looking at the rivers to see 
um, how the ice is melting. And so it's important for communities along river, you know, coastal and river communities to understand the watches and warnings. And then as we move out of flood season, we hit fire season here. Our fire season in Alaska is much earlier than everybody else's. So we will start to see fire season start the beginning of May. And so understanding what, uh, what those watches and warnings are and what days you're allowed to burn and not burn, you know, red flag warnings. That's really important so that you can keep your family safe, your neighbors safe, and your community safe. Well, it's been a pleasure to work with you and your crew uh, here in Alaska. And, and it's amazing to kind of see, no matter what the disaster is, there are a lot of similarities. And, and you know, from the preparedness kits uh, everyone needs to have to understanding what threats you could potentially face, understand what watches and warnings mean, uh, those types of things, and then having that communications plan, that's something we really can't stress enough because a lot of times you do see cell phones go down or they, you know, there's so many calls and texts going through that sometimes you, you can't make a call. So have a have backup forms of communication ready to go and, and have those rally points and, and people to help you uh, stay connected. Michelle, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike, and it's a pleasure to have you with us, and we appreciate you coming and helping us Alaskans out during this time. Now we'll move to the emergency resource segment for this episode. Louisiana has recently helped many states and territories before, during, and after emergencies. The state-to-state -state assistance was lined up through the Emergency Management Assistance Compact, or EMAC. EMAC establishes a firm legal foundation for sharing resources between states. Once the conditions for providing assistance to a requesting state have been set, the terms constitute a legally binding agreement. The EMAC legislation solves the problems of liabilities and responsibilities of cost and allows for credentials, licenses, and certifications to be honored across state lines. EMAC is implemented within the State Emergency Management Agency on behalf of the governor of each state. This provides a consistent and coordinated response across the nation. We are seeing greater state-to-state -state assistance as this program continues to grow. That is today's resource tip. Moving on to our second interview, Jeremy Zittick is the Public Information Officer for the Alaska Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. We spoke with Jeremy about some of the unique challenges his office faces while serving the public. Here's that interview. We are in Alaska to help with earthquake recovery. We have a unique show talking about some of the similarities with emergency planning, preparation, and training uh, between Alaska and Louisiana. But we also want to talk about some of the differences. Jeremy Zittick is the Public Information Officer for the Alaska Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. Thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, Mike. So we have talked about some of the similarities. It's good for families to have a communication plan, uh, think about your evacuation routes ahead of time, uh, have an emergency kit ready to go at all times. Those similarities kind of exist for any type of emergency. What are some of the unique things that you guys deal with in Alaska that maybe the other states don't see that often? Well, one of the big things is we're such a large state that we really have the tyranny of geography here. It's not easy to go anywhere in Alaska to get supplies into the state is really a, a process. 
Um, we have most of the goods that come into our state come through the Port of Alaska, which is in Anchorage, and then they're distributed throughout the state. About 90% of the goods that are on our store shelves, the fuel that comes into the state as well. So we have one kind of single point of failure um, that when things get bad and that port goes down, um, people will be without goods for 7 to 14 days. So the, the need to be self-sufficient is much greater. Um, also, uh, we have uh, unincorporated areas in our state that don't have any type of uh, parish, county, or borough government. Um, and in those areas, the state really needs to act as that county borough or parish government and fulfill those roles. It's statutorily required. So our emergency management agency really gets that um, community-based emergency response experience uh, because that's a a role that we have. Um, In addition, we have state individual assistance and public assistance programs that help communities recover from a disaster. What that means is even if we don't have a federal disaster declaration, we can have those state disaster declarations. We have to go through that entire process on the state level. So we have events where we're the primary agency that's responding to it, um, and then we transition into that recovery phase. So we kind of see that disaster from cradle to grave. Wow, that's interesting. So going back to the... uh November 2018 earthquake. Uh, Anchorage was one of the areas that that had a heavy impact from that event. Did you see a disruption of, of those services and uh, because of the roadways and some of the infrastructure here? We did see a disruption of our roadways. Some roadways subsided. We had some power outages. We had water some water issues, but really um, they were we recovered very quickly. Uh, Power in most parts of Anchorage and the Matsu Valley were restored within three days. Um, Really, after a few hours, power was back on. There was just some pockets without power. Our water utility here in Anchorage put a boil water advisory in place as a precautionary measure. Um, And the Department of Transportation really had roads repaired within uh, a week time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, all in all, uh, we were very lucky. A 7.1 earthquake is not a small earthquake, uh, but really we were ready for it. We trained for these type of um, events. Um, and in addition, we have very good building codes here in uh, South Central Alaska. In 1964, Alaska experienced the second largest earthquake that's ever been recorded, the 1964 Good Friday earthquake. After that, we took a real hard look at building codes and how we're going to build our buildings. And I think that that made a world of difference mm-hmm. um, in the outcome that we saw. In Louisiana, you know, we've taken a lot of steps. Uh, Most of the time, the building codes deal with hurricanes and other uh, uh, wind events. And so we've made some changes along the way. So you kind of live and you learn uh, to make those modifications. Uh, Overall, do you find that people in Alaska are resilient? Do you see a lot of uh, effort, you know, with families and with municipalities to to become uh, more prepared? 
Yes, I, I think that Alaskans are better prepared, and it's for a variety of reasons. Um, one, I, I talked a little bit about the logistics of living in Alaska and how our supplies come from far away, and that's Anchorage, um, our main city. As you move out from Anchorage, things get much more remote, and people have to kind of naturally take that those kind of preparedness steps and better prepare themselves um, the farther you get out into some very small communities that might have 100 to 750 people living in them, sometimes less than that, um, you know, it's often that a plane won't be coming in for a week or two weeks. And so people naturally have to stock up. We also have a subsistence culture here in Alaska. People that really, uh, especially our native community, rely on fish and wild game as their primary food source. Um, And that requires that when the fish are running, you're catching a lot of fish. When the berries are out, you're picking those berries. When the birds are flying over, you're harvesting those birds, and, and so on and so forth. So people are kind of in a natural cycle where they're collecting large amounts of food at different points in the year and then saving those for those times when it's lean. So they're already kind of in that in that mode to begin with, I guess. Yeah, that's correct. Mm. What about as far as messaging? So does do you still have to do a lot of messaging, you know, maybe for the more urban areas still telling people to stay prepared and and have emergency kits and those type things? Yeah, we do. We get out and talk about uh, having an emergency plan, getting an emergency kit, being informed, uh, stuff that you would typically hear in the lower 48. One of the, the big differences is here in Alaska, we say that you need enough emergency supplies for seven or more days. So seven is really our minimum amount that we recommend people have. Uh, and more supplies is obviously better. When we get out into our rural communities, and what do I mean by rural communities? These are communities that are only accessible by air or a snowmobile. We call them snow machines here in Alaska um, during the winter or air and riverboat during the the summer months. Um, and then there's periods of the year when you can't access it because there's not enough snow or the rivers haven't thawed and air is really the only way in there. Um, Very small communities, very far away from everyone else. So in those communities, it's a little bit different because they're such tight-knit family groups. Um, For me to say, Mike, have enough supplies for your family for seven days. Well, your family is really the extended family of the entire village. Mm And you wouldn't go and collect enough water for the five members of your family. That would be very rude and inconsiderate to your extended family members. So they do things much more in a large group fashion. And we looked at ways to support the entire community and ways the communities can be more self-sufficient as a whole. This will kind of wrap things up. So you're dealing with the recovery now from from the November earthquake. Uh, I know we always take a look at events in Louisiana and kind of um, uh, we use the, the lessons learned from those events kind of moving forward. Have you had enough time now to kind of look back at the November event to, to see if there's any lessons learned either with the event itself or with the recovery that's kind of ongoing? 
Well, I hit upon one of them, that building codes matter. Um, how we construct our buildings, how we construct our infrastructure really matters. Um, it, 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 it has to be put in place and you have to have the discipline to stick by those standards, but that matters. Two, uh, emergency preparedness works. Um, we get out and message people an awful lot on drop cover and hold on the, the recommended earthquake safety action. And across the state, we saw people doing that. Every year, we talk about drop, cover, and hold on. We have a statewide drop, cover, and hold on drill called the Great Alaska Shakeout. Um, we take an earthquake simulator out to different public events, shake people up, and talk to them about drop, cover, and hold on. So we saw that pay a lot of dividends, too. Um, and then in emergency management, Partnerships make all the difference. Uh, responding to a disaster is a team sport. You need your partners there, and the more you can work with those partners prior to the disaster, the greater benefit you're going to be able to provide to the people that are impacted by that event. Well said. And so, you know, it's it's tough to make people understand that a lot of times, but but these this information that you put out works, and I think that's part of the reason. You guys uh, had no fatalities, even though this was a large earthquake. So, so our hats off to you guys uh, with that messaging and trying to get the word out. Thank you for joining us for the podcast. Uh, good luck with the ongoing recovery efforts. And uh, thank you for allowing Louisiana to kind of be part of that process. Thanks for coming up to Alaska and helping us out with this event. Thank you for joining us for our Get a Game Plan podcast. Please encourage others to share this resource and subscribe. We want to thank Jeremy Zittick and Michelle Torres from Alaska for the information they provided today. Don't forget to check out the resources we mentioned today to help you and your business finalize an emergency plan. You can find more information on getagameplan.org and click on the business tab. We also want to thank the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA, for use of their studio. Sign up to be an organ donor today. Find out more at DonateLifeLA.org. They have a great podcast titled The Gifted Life Podcast. For more on the topics we talked about today, go to GetAGamePlan.org and don't forget to follow GOSEP on Facebook and Twitter. Remember, get a game plan. On behalf of the staff at GOSEP, thanks for joining us. We'll have a new episode for you available next month. This podcast is produced in partnership with LOPA and the Gifted Life Podcast. Find out more about organ, eye, and tissue donation by listening to the Gifted Life Podcast at thegiftedlife.org or download it from your favorite podcast app.